this week on the Back Table Podcast. I always look at, the, at a child. So if you have a mild hearing change and you're a straight A student and socially you're doing great and you're crushing everything, what's, am I going to double the quality of your life by putting a pair of hearing aids on you? Versus you have the same audiogram and you're borderline failing a couple classes and you're really struggling and you are really hating school. That's somebody who would benefit from hearing aids substantially more. So I think that's a, a conversation that I think is, is great to have with families. But it really does take looking at the child that's in front of you and not just the, that piece of them in context. Because like, at the end of the day, this is all about function. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. I'm your host, Gopi Shaw, here with my lovely co-host, Ashley Agan. Hey, how you doing, Gopi? I'm doing good. Did you light a candle last night for the valley? <laughs> your text was the first text I got for the valley, by the way. I, I appreciated your cultural sensitivity. <laughs> I, felt like I felt like I would get some points for being you know, up on that. I was thinking about for, you. For sure. So happy Indian New Year to everyone. We're here with a very special guest today, Dr. Rachel St. John. She's here to talk to us about helping children and their families with hearing loss. Rachel is a pediatrician who joined our Department of Otolaryngology at UT Southwestern in 2012 to provide a collaborative and comprehensive care service for children who are deaf or hard of hearing. She's the director of the Family Focus Center for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children at Children's Health in Dallas, UT Southwestern. And she's also a health education consultant at the state and national level. She was a member of the AAP Early Hearing Detection and Leadership Team and served as an AAP, so American Academy of Pediatrics, delegate to the Joint Committee on Infant Hearing. So welcome, Rachel. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on to the show. So, Rachel, you were one of the attendings when I was in residency here. And I remember, you know, like, you know, meeting you and hearing your lectures and talking and then being like, how did this amazing, intelligent pediatrician find her way into an otolaryngology department specializing in, you know, pediatric hearing loss? <laughs> Can that you tell us about your background and how you found your way to us? <laughs> it, it is the funkiest of stories. So thank you for that incredibly warm welcome. And also, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I feel a little old at the moment because now you are a big, full-fledged <laughs> attending. So yeah, we're going back in the vault a little bit. But um, yeah, it's a little bit of a windy road in terms of how, as a pediatrician, I ended up in otolaryngology. And it makes our credentialing people a little a little challenged every couple of years, but I basically, I grew up in Northern Virginia. So I was right outside Washington, D.C., which is one of the largest culturally deaf communities in the U.S. The, the population of people who are deaf and use sign language there is, is quite high. And I happened to go to an elementary school that was the magnet school for my county for the deaf education program. So I had students all around me when I was very young who were using sign language and I became friends with them and learned sign language pretty organically at a very early age. And so I grew up signing. I grew up, you know, with both hearing and deaf friends, and it's kind of always been part of my background. And then as I got older and I was, you know, going through college and thinking about grad school, I was hearing lots of stories from my deaf friends. Unfortunately, they were not positive in terms of accessing healthcare. You know, what it was like to go, say, to your GYN appointment as a deaf person and either not know what was going on or have an interpreter in the room and have great access. But then also that's a, a fairly vulnerable moment for some people. So kind of some of those stories of how people navigated accessing healthcare as a, as a deaf person those were very interesting and, and it was something that really resonated with me. So when I ultimately made the decision to go to med school, it's something I wanted to do. And I was really fortunate. I went to medical school at University of Virginia and uh, was fortunate enough to have a, get a Robert Wood Johnson Generalist Scholar Program grant to do my medical studies there. And that was specifically with the intention of 
of making healthcare more accessible to deaf and hard of hearing people and families. So I went to Georgetown for my pediatric residency in Washington, D.C., and I had a deaf accessible primary care peds clinic. Um, while I was there, I started it as a resident and I stayed there for several years as an attending, and it was a wonderful experience. I had good support. The problem was that it was really hard to do in a primary care environment. Primary care is, is you know, primarily set up for a really high volume. And it just, that, that, that had some challenges with it. So while I was in my residency, I also did a, a combo, I did a combo program. So I was part-time resident and part-time getting my master's in counseling at Gallaudet University, which is the deaf university in Washington, D.C. So I was really keeping connected to this uh, the entire time. In 2010, my husband and I moved to Texas and I actually took that opportunity. I was, I was a little burned out. I listened to your guys' first podcast on wellness and burnout with significant interest because I definitely have had a little bit of experience with that. So I stepped away from medicine for several years. And when we moved to Texas, I worked for the state. They had an early hearing detection and intervention education program. And so I traveled all over the state working with different physicians in different places. And I got to know a lot of people in the early hearing detection intervention world in Texas. One of those people was Dr. Angela Shoup, who was the director of audiology at Children's. And she's the one who I thought randomly, but I guess it wasn't. In 2012, she called me and said, you know, we've got this really great new division chief for our um, PDENT department at Children's. And I just think it would be great if the two of you chatted. And I thought, sure, I like to talk to people. I did not, I did not realize this was a job interview. <laughs> I sort of found that out when I got the email with the itinerary of all the people I was going to talk to. And I went, oh, I guess I better wear something nicer. I, I, well, it's funny. Uh, people still talk about it. I came with the, the East Coast power suit and the, and the heels. And it was not, it was, it, I think it looked pretty professional. It was not comfortable. <laughs> it was a long day with a lot of walking. So, but um, that's where I met Ron Mitchell, our division chief. He's all our bosses on this call, which is kind of funny. Right. And, you know, his goal, as he said, he was really interested in doing something more comprehensive for the, the deaf and hard of hearing kids we see in clinic. He said, you know, we've got a multidisciplinary program for our kids who get a cochlear implant, but for the, all the other kids who aren't cochlear implant candidates, and that's a much larger Majority, number. right? Yeah, very much so. He's like, you know, we put tubes in and we sent them home. And he said, I think we can be doing a lot more. And uh, so we all talked about this, and this was my secret pipe dream. It had been on my laptop for years and years and years. And so they offered me the opportunity to start working sort of as the, I, I view it as sort of complex care coordination around the hearing status. So for all our deaf and hard of hearing kids, you know, making sure that our parents and families understand what that means, understand the early language access is incredibly important, understand what educational and, and other resources are available to them. So that was eight years ago that I started and I'm still here and it's grown. I have uh, two nurse practitioners that work with me now. They are fabulous. Huge shout out to Ella and Caroline. Mm -hmm. And the reality is this works much better in an ENT specialty department where we have access to audiology right down the hall. We have access to each other. It's often the first point of contact for these families. And it, it really works great. So I am your non-surgical party crasher in ENT. <laughs> it's probably the best party crasher to have. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, when I think about visits, right, our visits with new identification of hearing loss or follow-up, you know, audiogram for, you know, sensory neural hearing loss, hearing aid, you know, they need to get another audiogram just for hearing adjustments. Our visits are probably, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Rachel, what's, how long are your visits? Well, how long are they? God, I, I almost don't want to say it because I'm afraid somebody's going to show up and say, oh, there's been a terrible mistake. We need to, we need to take this away. <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the I, things that Dr. I ask oh, because I feel like there's so much more involved that as ENTs, right, we're their ear doctors, and yet there's so much more involved than our quick you know, 15, 20 minutes in terms of patient counseling and 
education and resources for these patients? It's a great point. You know, I think I think the ask for anybody who see a patient who's really complex or has lots of different medical conditions, it's a big ask to, to take care of everything in 15 to 20 minutes. And I think what patients are expecting is that we're going to view that child as a whole person. And I think the timetable that we work on and sort of the constraints of managed care don't always fit with that. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that there are other models that have taken this approach. You know, you hear about like cystic fibrosis centers and complex cardiac centers that have patient navigators or, or people that sort of work with families more holistically. You also see that in complex care in the primary care realm. And those visits are necessarily longer because you're you're not just going over the hearing status, but you're going over what it means for the child. What are you going to do about it? What kinds of things should you be looking for? Are the parents okay? A lot of times they're not. A lot of times they're overwhelmed. The information is new and they're really looking for somebody to help them with that. So yeah, it, the, the acknowledgement that that takes more time, I've never taken that for granted. That's something that Dr. Mitchell and I talked about way, way, way at the inception of this. And I said, if I'm going to do this right, I need time. And so for a new patient consult, I actually have 90 minutes. And for follow-ups, I have 30 to 60, depending on the complexity of the child. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's the resource that you provide our patients is amazing. In terms of like, you know, we, so, you know, they might see me, right? Like, let's say it's a new identified, you know, five-year-old with unilateral, bilateral, with hearing loss. Okay. We, what are, what are the most common things that we as ENTs might miss or forget or in our workup and our counseling? What do you, what do you get into with the patient? So you see that kid, your first visit, what is it that, what's that visit like? It's a great question. And I certainly am not going to throw any of you guys under the bus for quote, missing anything. Because again, I think, I think what we're being asked to do and what we get time to do often are two different things. When you're talking about a new diagnosis that impacts development so significantly, because that's what we're talking about. You know, when you're talking about kids who are deaf and hard of hearing, it's not just the lack of sound input. It's, it's lack of access to language development. And that's kind of, you know, if you ask me, that's the whole reason for me being there. So when I get a child who has an, a new identification of hearing status, the kind of walkthrough we do with parents, obviously I'm going to read the room because sometimes I'll walk in and parents are really collaborative and seeking information. Sometimes I walk in and they're very emotionally distraught because they didn't expect this or they don't know what's happening. So, you know, a lot of it is sort of supporting families. I feel like I pull on my counseling degree all the time, every day when I do work, even though I'm not doing sort of classic therapy. It's a, it's a lot of counseling support with families. but. The first thing I do with families is I take their audiogram of their child and I superimpose it on what we call the visual audiogram. I'm sure you've seen it at clinic. We refer to it sometimes as the speech banana. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an audiogram that that it's the same graph, but it has all of the information visible. You know, what, what sounds are where? Where does speech live? Where is a dark barking dog? Where is a vacuum cleaner? Where is a bird chirping? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I put those results on there and then I go over with the family what the child can hear and what they can't and then what might benefit from things like amplification. And so that's always for the families to keep and pay on to. And then we kind of go through a language assessment and see what's been happening. Obviously that's going to look really different if you're born deaf and you have, you know, bilateral profound sensory neural versus, you know, I'm older and I have late onset changes or it's one ear versus two ears. Those things all play differently into how children acquire language. So that's our, the really, that's the kind of the crux of the visit is what are the things you need to make sure that your child can access language and access education and access connection with other human beings. And so everything that we talk about, community resources, education, amplification, whether it's hearing aids, cochlear implants, bone anchored hearing aids, all of those things go into kind of the, the psychosocial success of children. I think it's, that's so amazing to think about, you know, you being able to really break it down like that, because I know in my clinic, there's always, you know, I just feel very rushed and hurried sometimes. And frequently most kids are coming in for something straightforward, like 
you know, like a tube check or something like that. And then all of a sudden you run into a patient that does have a new diagnosis of, you know, sensory neural hearing loss where you, there needs to be time to dive into the implications of that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I don't have, yeah. you know, the yeah. time and I don't maybe even have all of the answers. I appreciate being able to refer them to you, Rachel, because that's what I envision is you actually being able to give them everything that I know that they need in these situations. When I have these kids, one thing that I'm worried about is, you know, what all, what are all the studies that I need to be ordering? Like, does every kid need to be sent for, you know, labs and genetic testing? Does every kid need MRI? What, what are the nuances of that part of the workup and are, how much of that are you involved in? That's a big part of what we do because sometimes we see kids later on down the road and they've had some of the workups. Sometimes we see kids and nothing's happened yet. We're getting them sort of fresh. And it's, it really, I mean, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of looking at the child. So when I tend to break this up, I really like sort of thinking about this in the way that was categorized by the 2016 International Pediatric Otolaryngology Group. So the IPOC consensus that was published in 2016 looked at a bunch of pediatric data about what kinds of things are more common in children versus adults. There's this whole algorithm for adults. Like, you know, when you have sudden hearing changes in adults, one of the first things you think about is, is a hemorrhagic event. And in kids, that's just incredibly rare. It's not impossible, but it's certainly not at the top of our list. So they've broken it down. And I tend to think about it this way too, whether it's sensory, neural, or conductive. So if we're talking about sensory, neural hearing changes, I really think about it in terms of unilateral, bilateral, and that really drives my work up. So I think it's good to keep in mind that about a third of the time when you have children who have bilateral sensory neural hearing changes, about a third of the time, it's idiopathic, or, or at least we don't know how to test for everything. And so mm -hmm. we can do all the testing we do and we, we don't get a diagnosis. But a third, roughly a third of the time, it's genetic. And so the first thing that I go for, and this is supported by the consensus statement, is comprehensive genetic testing. So this is not target testing. This is, this is sending a child to genetics for a full evaluation. And I think that in the past, that didn't happen a whole lot. People would say, well, it's not really going to change what we're doing. You might get the name of it, but that's not really going to change our medical management. And I would strongly beg to differ because if you get a good genetic evaluation and, you know, with the access to testing, we have our multi-gene hearing panels now are upward of 200 plus mutations that are known to involve hearing changes. And if you can get an identification on a child that's genetic, one of there, there's a couple of things that happen. One is you either have other things that are medically associated that you need to be on the lookout for that you would not have known otherwise. So like I, we've picked up a couple of kids, for example, who have Usher syndrome and that's inherited sensorineural hearing changes with progressive retinitis pigmentosa. So these people lose vision over time, usually starting in their late teens early adulthood. Well, if I know that when that child's a toddler and I can get them into ophthalmology and early, and even maybe they're amenable to vitamin A supplementation, that's going to change the course of what we're doing. Conversely, if I get a genetic identification for Connexin 26 mutation, which is the most common non-syndromic reason for hearing changes that we see, I'm not going to order any other stuff. I'm not going to go getting a sedated MRI because that happens at the at the potassium exchange level that happens in the channels that's not structural so it is going to absolutely change my management so you know that's very that's very insurance based but i always do try to get comprehensive genetic testing first certainly if that doesn't show anything an mri of uh, internal auditory canals can be really helpful and i i always i'm a real stickler i always get an ekg on any kid who has bilateral sensory neural and i don't have a reason just to rule out prolonged, inherited prolonged QT. It's real rare, but man, if you have it, that's a hard way to find that out yeah. on, the, yeah. on the football field or wherever you are. Yeah. And the EKG is easy enough to get, and you know, it's and getting an EKG is much easier than getting a sedated MRI. So it's like, why, you why not go out and get not kidding. And in 20 plus years of practice, I've never had an EKG denied by insurance, plenty of other stuff, but 
And then for unilateral imaging, it's usually first. You know, it's it's pretty rare that it can happen, but usually if it's genetic, it's, it's going to be bilateral. So for unilateral, I usually go for imaging first. So Rachel, I'm glad you brought up the uh, genetics and your example, I think is great. You know, I've heard lots of different arguments in terms of genetic workup, just like you say, let's say it's an otherwise healthy kid that has no diagnosed other medical problems, heart, lung, vision. I have heard people say, you know, wait till they get older. The genetic testing panels, all that has going to be more informative, advanced. Wait till they want to start family planning. How do you, how do you, I mean, and so when you gave us the ushers example, you know, it makes more sense, but do you have families or patients that, you know, don't want to do it necessarily? And how do you uh, counsel them? That's a, that's an outstanding question. And it does happen. I think if it's the question of a wait till the testing gets better, well, you can certainly do it now and then 10 years do it again when we have more information. But yeah, we have had a couple of families. It doesn't, it's not the majority of them, but we do have a few who are leery of genetic testing. And I would say that the majority of the time, that's because they don't necessarily know what it, it, it involves. So our hearing panels only test for those specific 200 mutations. They're not paternity tests. They're, they're, you know, certainly if they need to go to larger testing, that's something that the genetics specialists will talk with the families about. But usually this comprehensive targeted testing, it's, it's really specific. Occasionally, and this just happened to me the other week, I had, I did have a, a parent who told me, she said, I know you recommended that I go, but she goes, she said, I actually just couldn't handle it if I found out that it was something from my side of the family. She said, I know that sounds irrational. And she said, and it, it's not, it's not a bad thing. And it's, she says, I just, I was so uncomfortable with the fact that I might know hmm where it came from. She was actually much more comfortable just saying, this is my child and I accept who she is and I love her. And I actually, that information makes me more anxious. And I really respect that. I do think it's important to go through that with families and help them understand why or why not we wouldn't pursue testing. But I've definitely had families where we've opted to just wait until that child starts expressing interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because the question is always like, well, what is that information? How does it how does it change what we're going to do? And, you know, if you can safely proceed without that information, then you can talk about, you know, uh, holding off or, you know, waiting for sure. What about what about kids who have who have a mixed mixed hearing loss? Yeah, that's that's always fun. You know, the, <laughs> the conductive part, thing, again, the 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 POG consensus also has support in an algorithm for conductive changes, which I think is really helpful. And I think, you know, obviously, certainly in the ENT world, we always determine if this is potentially reversible. Like if you stuck a big old jelly bean in your ear, then yeah, we can probably fix your conductive hearing loss rather quickly. Mm -hmm. Or if you have fluid, we could put tubes in. But, you know, if we're talking about something permanent that's either conductive or mixed, you know, if this is not something middle ear dependent, obviously looking at that whole kid and seeing if there's any syndromic presentation because mixed and conductive hearing changes definitely are part of mid syndromes that involve mid-face, things like treacher collinge, hemifacial microsomia, those kinds of things. Branchio-otorenal, those, those, those may have sort of ear malformation involvement. Imaging, we often do CT for that, um, but imaging certainly is super helpful. The mixed presentation is interesting. In, in my clinic, when kids have a true mixed situation is often one of two scenarios. Either they have baseline sensory neural and then they have middle ear disorder on top. That's giving them an additional conductive component. Or they have the famous, and I know Gopi's going to really want to dive into this at some point. They have the famous enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Pandora's um, box. Pandora's box, which, you know, I think in the general population is not huge, but certainly in our clinic, large number of, of kids with EVA. And it's interesting because the, again, we can get into that as much or as little as you want to, but that mixed presentation often, I've, I've even seen it referred to as a pseudo-conductive component. It's, it's, it's most characterized by a, a third window situation with the bony involvement with EVA. So those are, you know, when I see mixed, particularly late onset, one of the first things I think about is EVA. And, and I usually move to imaging. 
And do you usually CT talk, give the family the option? Because, you know, with CT, we think radiation. With MRI, we think sedation, depending on the age and the child's ability. I think it's exactly that. I think it's, you know, part of it is, and I've talked to different providers about what they prefer for seeing different things. And I've heard all of it. I've heard people say MRI is better for EVA. I've heard people say, no, CT is better for EVA. I think when kids have almost primarily or exclusively a conductive component, CT is more helpful because you are thinking about things like bony involvement or a secular chain. But I think it, a lot of it depends on the age of the child and what you're, what you're thinking about in terms of sedation versus radiation, length of procedure. Is there something else that needs to be combined with those things? We, we, you know, we often will combine hearing tests with MRIs, sedated ABRs, if you need an MRI. So yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is just based on how old that kid is and what we're looking for. In terms of uh, EVA, and again, I don't know how much we want to go into this now, but how do you counsel families in terms of activities? You know, we're always taught that with EVA, you have to avoid head trauma, significant barotrauma, because that can make the hearing the hearing worse. What do you tell in terms of, uh, or do you tell them to do have activity limitations, restrictions, head protection? What's that conversation? Yeah. And you know, it's kids. So that's always right. yeah. a little, little more challenging depending on what age they are. I think we do all this counseling because it makes us look smart in the sense that, you know, if you look at the literature, the exact underlying mechanism for the hearing change associated with EVA is unknown. So it's not that you have this enlargement of the vestibular aqueduct. That isn't causative. That's not what's making the hearing drop. It's a radiologic marker at least that's postulated in the data, it's a radiologic marker for an underlying process, potentially yeah. at the cellular level. And so, yeah, we're basically like, yeah, we usually see kids, Lou is hearing with this, and we're not exactly sure why. Well, none of us wants to say that because right. that doesn't make anybody feel good, including us. But, um, you know, in terms of counseling, we do know that there are some situations that tend to predispose children to faster or more abrupt drops in hearing when they have EVA. And those tend to be significant trauma to the head or significant changes in barometric pressure. So in terms of sports, obviously, I, I always tell families, your kid's not in a bubble. You do not need to wrap them in plastic and put them in the attic. That is not the whole point of being person. <laughs> um, they can go do sports. I think the sports that have the highest risk of what, because you're really thinking about head contact particularly head-to-head -head contact. So the really big ones are football, rugby, and soccer. Mm. And then the other stuff tends to be more incidental, right? Like, yeah, you could clonk heads with somebody playing basketball. You're, it's a lot. It, it's not supposed to happen. And if it happens, it's an accident. So you really have to weigh out, you know, I really try not to get parents super anxious about this. And I really, really firmly believe these kids need to be active because certainly being sedentary and overweight and all of the, right. the, the things that accompany that are a much bigger issue. And then, you know, in terms of bare measure changes, people ask me about planes. Usually I encourage people to, you know, if you're flying somewhere, go ahead, the, pre the cabin's pressurized. And if you have a sudden depressurization in the cabin, that's going to predispose your, your kid to a sudden drop in hearing. You have way bigger problems mm -hmm. at that moment because your cabin has depressurized. So yeah. that's, that's a, that's a, a, really doesn't happen very often. The other thing I, I really will counsel kids, and it's mostly high school and college entry kids and young adults, is scuba diving. Yeah. Because sometimes schools will offer it for credit. And I actually did have a patient who did not know that they had EVA. This is a very, very, very long time ago when I was in DC and it was a it was a college, it was a student who had gone on to college and they took scuba diving as part of their credit course. And you know, went into the pool with a moderate level and wow, went, spent some time and then came up and had a big drop. Mm. So that's always something I, I encourage families to think about too. And what, what are the next steps look for, look like for a patient like that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the next steps really involve, for, at least from my perspective, making sure that that patient is involved with their own decision-making. I mean, it's a lifetime, so it's going to be you know, I, like I, for example, I had a patient who was a catcher for his baseball team and he was actually being recruited for college. He was really, really, really good. And he 
you know, we had talked about the fact that, again, you're not supposed to get a fastball to the head, but if you're a catcher, the likelihood of that is a little higher mm -hmm. than if you're in the outfield. And so we talked about the risks that would be potentially associated with, you know, if he ever took a ball to the head at fast velocity. And, you know, he was college age. And so he was really able to articulate with me and with his parents. He said, I, you know, I hear you. I hear all of this. And I am comfortable with the fact that if I have a drop in hearing because of some, you know, freak incident, like I'm okay with that. It's more important for me to keep this as part of my life and pursue this. And I supported him 100% because he made that choice as a, as a young adult and he had the support of his family. So I think a lot of it is making sure that when those decisions are made, that they involve the, the child who's, who's becoming an emerging adult and that they end up taking some of the responsibility for that decision making. Because it's not about avoiding everything that could possibly drop your hearing because you would never come out of your house. So it's... It's all about, you know, risk benefit. And certainly if the joy of your life is playing baseball and, uh, so, you know, sometimes it's, it's worth those, those risks to be able to live a full life. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is just, you know, informed decision making. Well, and I love the fact that um, it's important. Like, I, I love that you see older patients because you're right. The needs are different and the decision making is different once the child is in high school, college. And it all starts even earlier than that, you know, late elementary and middle school in terms of, you know, having, you know, the child wanting to have an FM system, the child being willing to wear a hearing aid. How does age come into play with your counseling? And what do you, what are the different needs of the different age groups to help these kids understand their, their hearing loss? I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually think it's incredibly important because it's not just limited to the to these children and young adults understanding. It's their family understanding what that means for them. So, you know, one of the things you had, I think you had mentioned it earlier, you said, what's something that we tend to forget in ENT? But I think it's not just ENT, it's all of medicine. I cannot tell you how many times families and children as they're getting older have told me, wow, you're the first doctor that's come in and talked to my kid directly. You're the first person who asked them what they wanted. And I do it starting at a very early age. And I, I just gauge it developmentally. If I've got a kid who's really developmentally precocious at age five, I'm going to involve them to whatever extent I can in the visit. As soon as kids are showing more independence, I'm going to, I'm going to try to have as much of that visit independently with them as I can with support from the family. Because what unfortunately tends to happen, and it's not just with deaf and hard of hearing kids, it's with lots of different kids who might have multiple medical conditions. Some families are a little vulnerable to the fragile child script. And it, I totally understand how it happens. You know, you have Parents who have to make tons of decisions for their children when they're very, very young about their medical care. And so they get very used to that. And as their child is getting older, sometimes parents are more comfortable speaking for their children. And I think as physicians, sometimes we're pretty relieved if we walked into a scenario and we're not totally comfortable with it. And then the parent starts interacting with us. We could just go ahead and interact with the parent. I think it happens a lot with kids who are deaf and hard of hearing because Sometimes they're missing part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they engage in communication that a physician isn't familiar with. So I happen to be fluent in American Sign Language, and that has helped me tremendously because a lot of the kids that I see use both spoken and sign language. And so, you know, sometimes kids and young adults in particular will tell me, yeah, nobody talks to me. They just immediately start talking to my mom because it's easier. Mm. And it is, it is easier. It's a, it, it just it's faster. And it's sometimes you get the information you need quickly and, you know, that's all that's good, but it really takes that patient out of the equation. So I involve kids and older kids and young adults to whatever extent that I can in the visit that's appropriate to their developmental level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference. How does sign language come into your treatment plan and and when do you do you help families connect with resources to for using sign language so yeah this is like the best thing you could have ever asked me because i think go for me knows this is a little bit of a, a little bit of a soapbox for me and um, the answer is a resounding yes you know i think this is where our field 
and a lot of other fields that are involved in working with deaf and hard of hearing kids. Tons of fields, audiology, speech pathology, early intervention. I mean, there's so many players in this, but I think this is where things get a little fractured in terms of how we approach working with these kids and giving them access to language. My biggest thing over the last 20 years or whatever it's been, I can't do the math, it's 20 something, um, that I've been working with, with deaf and hard of hearing children and their families. The most important thing as a pediatrician and as a developmentalist is early language access. And the data, This there's a, a small but growing body of data that's looking at deaf kids and language emergence in both spoken and sign language. And all of the decent data, the peer-reviewed data with sound methodology that I've seen going back to probably the early 90s all the way up till now, it really points to early language acquisition being the cornerstone for, for all of this development, not mode. So I think that there's some people who really cling to, you know, if you want to develop spoken language, you can only do spoken language. And if you do sign language, it's going to somehow take away from that. Well, it's not what the data shows us. It's certainly not what my last couple of decades of experience have shown me in terms of outcomes for kids. The much much more concerning thing that unfortunately I see a lot in my clinic are kids who don't get early language access. And so they, they miss a lot of that critical language window and they end up with what's called early language deprivation. So, and, and they can't catch up the way that other kids can. Rachel, tell us, let's d- dig into language access. Let's dig into it more. I, I mean, it, it makes sense. Language versus sign, ac- sign language. Can you just break it down? in terms of what exactly language access means? Because we get these questions of, if my child does sign, he's not going to, quote, speak. Or I think my child has speech delay, but I think it's because, you know, one person speaks, I don't know, Gujarati, English, and the other one speaks Spanish, and it's too many languages. Tell us what language access means and how to answer some of those questions. Wolf. I mean, that's, it's the million dollar question. And if we can answer this in this podcast, then we are amazing. But I can, I can. <laughs> you are amazing. I've asked you. <laughs> you know, it's, so I heard something in a talk recently that was actually been, it was being given on BPI and, and it was from one of the speech pathologists. And she said, you know, it's really important to remember that speech articulation is is oral motor but language originates in the brain and i think that's where this goes off the rails immediately speech and language are not the same thing language is the thought construct that we develop as humans to to generate a concept and then the way that we share that concept is through a mode whether it's spoken language english spanish french whether it's visual sign language, whether it's pro-tactile. So that would be sign language by touch for people who um, are deafblind. Um, the, the mode is not the language. The language is the thought construct in the brain. And so if you can work, I'll just give you a, an example. If you handed me a paragraph of Italian, I could probably read it for you. I don't know how good my accent would be, but I could probably limp my way through and read it for you. I would have no idea what I'm saying because I have speech and no language. Hmm. So, so the language is, is absolutely the building block that we're looking to build. And again, the data supports building that building block, the thought concept, and the mode is irrelevant. And we actually have a lot of good data that shows that if you expose kids to sign language, it doesn't impede the development of their spoken language as they're moving on. I've only seen in the past 20 years, I've only seen one study come out that overtly says sign language is harmful to the spoken language development of kids. And it's been hotly contested in the community. So it's really kind of in the face of everything else that's come along. So, you know, this, the idea of too many languages, I've only seen that be a problem when we have a kid who's not neurotypical. So if you have a child who's dealing with some other other conditions, maybe autism is part of the plan or some other developmental conditions. Sometimes I've seen that be more of an issue for me hit with the, the cognitive strengths of several different languages in early childhood. But most of the time, if you have a child and you, 
you know, the parents speak English and then nanny speaks French and they go to Spanish schoolhouse and they do Spanish at school. And then they're doing a little bit of sign language with their friends in the playgroup. They're going to develop all of them. They, they all develop, they get a little mushy in the first couple of years. There's a lot of code switching between them and you see some of one overlapping with the other. And, but if, you know, if you measure it all as a whole, these kids are not delayed. And usually by about age four or five, they've ironed out who they need to put in what box and use what language with. Mm -hmm. I love that it's all at the level of the brain and that it's just different uh, modes of self-expression. I absolutely love that to make connections. It's beautiful. Well, and if you miss that window for early language development, it's, it, you can't, it's not the kind of thing where you could go, okay, when they turn 10, we're going to hit this thing really hard. Right. You, you, you sort of miss the boat on that one. And that's really sad. And what is the window? That's, it's, it's debatable. What I have seen in terms of the physiologic stuff, so brain myelination and sort of neuroplasticity and the end of, of temporal pruning, the, the human brain is fully myelated around age four. And so that's when a lot of that flexibility that, you know, I, it, I, if I have a pathway and I use it, I'm going to cement it. That's where that starts to really decline. And so I would say four is kind of one of those periods physiologically where, you know, if you, if you don't have a, a first language in place by four, if you're not getting good language access before age four, you're going to have some real sort of neurological stiffness in terms of acquiring a first language beyond that. But having said that, year zero to one looks real different than year three to four. I mean, the, these, those early, early, that first year where you've got billions of excess brain cells, that's a critical moment. That's a big use it or lose it moment. And so if you are, for example, if you're born completely deaf and you are waiting for a cochlear implant and the earliest that that's going to be covered by third-party insurance is six months and the earliest that that's going to be covered by Medicaid is 12 months. So if you're going to sit around for those first six to 12 months and do nothing linguistically, that child is behind the eight ball. Mm. Whereas if you start with sign language, which is usually available, you are starting to build that, that brain thought concept that you can then start when that sound input eventually starts coming, you have something to link it with. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of letting children languish without language for the, the first six to 12 months of their life. Some parents will get that very advice, not from our department, thank goodness, but um, you know, I've worked with lots of families who have heard that kind of thing. Oh, just wait till we do the cochlear implant and then we'll work on spoken language. And that, that unfortunately sometimes sets uh, families up. Some kids do okay and some do not. Yeah. And they, so it's never too early. Yeah. It's, no, there's, it's never too early ever. What are some other special considerations that you have with your, for your patients with hearing loss, Rachel? That's a great, that's a great question. I think a couple of things I always think about. One is aggressively referring to early childhood intervention for our kids who are birth to three. I think that, because those are the people who are going to work with families for acoustic positioning, helping them with their amplification, teaching them sign language, getting them ready for school, supporting parents. And unfortunately, that referral doesn't really live with anybody specifically. Like that referral, it's not like, you know, it's like if you're going to get your preventative shots, you do that with your pediatrician. I don't think ENTK is clamoring to take over the world of preventative vaccination. Everybody knows you go to your pediatrician, you get your shots. Right. I don't think ECI is, you know, anyone can make an ECI referral, which is great. And also what makes it a little problematic because that all doesn't always live with any one provider. And so I always encourage the residents in PEDS and ENT, our colleagues, if you have a kid birth to three who's not been referred to ECI, that's a wonderful opportunity. And I think some other, and the other consideration I think is super important. And I, you can yell at me if I sound preachy about this. I'm not trying to, but I think it's very easy to forget that whatever we do for and with these kids, so no matter what kind of technology we put behind their ears or in their ears or even inside them surgically, it actually doesn't fundamentally change who they are at all. At the end of the day, they're still deaf. So if you get a cochlear implant and you take it off to swim, to take a bath, you're going to bed, you're waking up, it's broken and it's being repaired and you're waiting for it to come back, you're, you're a deaf person. And I think that 
sometimes the messaging we give families is contrary to that. Oh, we'll do this and it'll just make everything fine. That's understandable that that message comes because we're hearing centric people. If you're hearing, you, you function from a hearing perspective. I get it. But if we don't acknowledge that these kids are deaf and we don't help families acknowledge that these kids are deaf and we spend a lot of time trying to make them hearing, we set these kids up for some really significant identity crises when they go through adolescence. I've seen it happen. I've seen kids get super angry with parents for not giving them certain opportunities when they were younger, when parents, again, were just making the best decisions that they knew how based on the information that they had. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, kids who are deaf are deaf and we give them access and we give them technology that helps them access the hearing world better, but it does not fundamentally change who they are at baseline. And if we don't support that messaging with families, we can set families up for a, a bit of a tough time down the road. Yeah, I think that's a really big, I think that's a really important thing that that you're, you know, very, that you lay out so, so well for us. I think, you know, the big thing is, is that we're not, we're not curing them of being deaf. We're giving them, you know, a cochlear implant is a tool. So we're giving them a tool to access, you know, spoken language, but you know, helping them kind of with their identity and what this means for the rest of their life is going to be a lot more helpful than just kind of, you know, throwing a hearing aid on them and kind of saying, see you later. So I, I mean, it's not, I think, you know, something I admire so much about what you're doing is, is you're actually, you know, helping them kind of step through this diagnosis that it's there forever. Yeah, I thank you for that. And, you know, I think part of that comes from the fact that, you know, there is, um, for, for people who are not familiar with it, there's a, a cultural component to being deaf. There is actually a, a cultural, it's called, it's the capital D deaf community. So deaf spelled with a capital D. And I don't, you know, I don't represent the deaf community and I don't speak for them because I'm a hearing person. But, you know, in working with folks, I think it's very helpful for providers to know that, you know, there are, there are people who are deaf who are out there who actually deaf, being deaf is not only a part of who they are, it's a very positive part of who they are. They actually wouldn't become hearing if they had the opportunity. And they do all the same things that hearing people do that make us successful adults. They go to school, they have relationships, they have families, they get terminal degrees, they have careers, they, you know, have community, they get involved in hobbies and spiritual communities and what, you know, whatever, all the things that make us people, they do the same things. They just do them through a visual medium and through their own culture. And, you know, that's a group of people for whom taught, you know, this, it, you'll, you'll hear me. I mean, I, I'm not the PC police. I am not a terminology policier, but I personally don't use the term hearing loss or impairment when I talk about this and it's not because it's a dirty word or it's, it's, I mean, it is offensive to a group of people, but there's a reason we use it medically. It, it means something. But I think when we use those terms with families and families hear terms like loss and impairment very early on, even though we're talking about it related to a very specific aspect of that child, families almost always, and we know this from data from pilot programs, families hear those words and and really view their child globally in, in that manner. And so we're basically coming from a place of limitation in those early, early conversations. So I tend to use, you know, I use very neutral language when I talk with families for the first time. I talk about the fact that their child has hearing changes and hear how, here's how it's different from what we would expect. And I let families learn about these things as they go on and figure out how, how that child wants to talk about themselves, how that family wants to talk about that child. So, you know, I, I am very fortunate to work in such an enlightened otolaryngology department as the one that I do with, with you folks, because it takes people at the top recognizing that this is something that's important for families and making space for it. And I am not, I don't even begin to think that, that what I do would work just anywhere. I think the fact that I work where I work with the people that I work with and the fact that you guys take advantage of the fact that I'm there in such a positive way makes this really successful. So this is my opportunity to tell you guys thank you.
Oh, <laughs> Thank you. I think you're you're such a wonderful addition to our department, and I always learn so much talking with you. And it's it's very special to be a part of of a department that is working so hard to to give kids a, a better quality of life and to be able to kind of live with with the cards that they've been dealt and to live their best life. So it's very cool. Before we wrap up, Rachel, I wanted to ask you one last question, and this may be something that we, this could be another Pandora's box, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd like that you end with that. That's so Yeah, great. this could be Pandora's <laughs> box, but um, just last quick question. So do you manage or counsel your patients differently or is how aggressive in terms of counseling your workup differently when it's unilateral versus bilateral or mild? Like, do you do anything different for those kids? And how does that, because I always think of school performance, right? Like, as well as language, does it change the way you manage your kids? Um, yeah, the answer is yes. And it's a phenomenal question. And I, I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of telling that we sort of brought it up as like, here's the closer, because this is a population of patients that's very easy not to see. They're easy um, to miss. Yeah. The kids who are single-sided deafness or kids who have mild level hearing changes. So the I see it, the literature often works, work, describe this as MMHL, which is minimal or mild hearing loss. And there's a lot of research going back to the 80s. Bess and Tharp were sort of the the folks who did a ton of research and then Ann Park did a, did a whole retrospective thing in I think 2017 or 2018 and nothing has changed. And, and it's exactly what you say, other than the fact that we're much more aware of it. These kids who are deaf in one ear or have sort of mild hearing changes, so they all function socially quite well. They all have language. They all develop language. Sometimes there might be some speech articulation stuff they all develop language, but their access to language varies wildly depending on what environment they're in. So, you know, if they're at home and it's quiet and it's one-on-one and they're able to see people's faces, often they'll get a much better picture than, as you mentioned, when they're in school. And there's lots of competing background noise and it's open set. So the teacher could be talking about anything and it's new, so they don't even have anything to draw on if they have to fill gaps in cognitively. So these kids are definitely at higher risk of having to repeat a grade. They definitely, they have a higher usage of special education plans. And unfortunately for these kids, because socially they look so good, they look like they're doing all the things that people expect, it often presents as behavioral. So these kids, the teachers all complain this kid needs Ritalin Mm. because they don't pay attention. They don't focus. They don't, you ask them a question, they give you a totally out there answer. They never know what's going, you know, we're lining up and they're off doing their own thing. And it it looks like inability to focus or inability to pay attention a lot of time or being just defiant. But a lot of times it's kids trying to compensate. So you'll have kids who are the class clown because they're deflecting because they don't want to get cold on. You'll have kids who will try to close to the best of their ability with the 70% of information they got and they put out the wrong answer. You'll have kids who won't volunteer and they're very quiet and they're the kids in the parent-teacher conference where the teacher's saying, hey, you really got to work on your kid not being so shy in class. They're missing all these learning opportunities. And they're definitely afraid to participate because they're not working with the full Rolodex of information that everybody else is being given. So yeah, I, I think looking at the visual audiogram with those families is incredibly important because it's really important for those families to acknowledge, yes, your kid hears tons, but here's where things are falling out. Here's where things are the most challenging at school. The counseling that we do, even for mild or single-sided is pretty significant. And a lot of it is around making sure that school is accessible. Yeah. And do you find that you have resistance or any kids who just don't want to wear hearing aids or, you know, they just cringe at the thought of, you know, having something that outwardly tags them as being different? No, not at all. Every single one of them loves their hearing aids. <laughs> uh, yeah. All the time. And, you know, it's funny. I'll get parents who say, all right, Dr. St. John's going to talk to you about these hearing aids and you're going to listen to her. And the first thing I say to that teenager who doesn't want to wear their hearing aids because they look different from their friend, the first thing I say is that's normal. You're supposed to feel that way. 
And these parents look at me like I'm just this charlatan. And, you know, my next, my next discussion is that's appropriate. That's appropriate for your age. It's okay to feel that way. But here's what's going to happen if you don't wear them. And because you're as old as you are, all this consequences on you. So, you know, when you're, when you're not wearing your hearing aids, cause you're, you don't want to look different to your friends. You know, sometimes I'll ask kids, well, what do you want to do after high school? And they'll say things like go to college. And I'm like, okay, so what do you need to get into college? Well, you need good grades. Well, what grade are you getting in your science class right now? A D that's not going to get you there. You know, a lot of it is, is really having that conversation with the child and the parent is peripheral, but the parent also needs to hear that that's normal. A lot of times these parents are like, don't be, don't, it doesn't matter. You just have to wear them. And sometimes these kids just need to be acknowledged that, yeah, yeah, it stinks when people make fun of you. But I'll tell you what, if it were at the hearing aids, it's going to be something else because that's just how things go when you're in junior high school and high school. Like it's not, it ain't just you. Yeah. So I think normalizing that is really helpful for these kids. Mm -hmm. It's also really helpful when I show them mine. I'll take them off and show them that I'm wearing them. Sometimes they didn't even notice. Yeah. The technology now is a lot smaller and you can get them the color of your hair or you can get them rock star glitter blue if you want. I mean, it's, it's really every kid's different. Some kids don't mind at all. I've had kids who've never had an issue with it. And then some it's it is absolutely the worst thing that they've ever been asked to do. It's really crushing for them. And I think just normalizing that their feelings about that being OK is incredibly helpful for the for the parents as well. And well, I learned so much today, Rachel. Thank you so much. I feel like there, the whole concept of language access, you enlightened me from since I was your, a fellow to, you know, eight years later. So thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any final pearls or tips that you'd want to leave us with? You know, I mean, first, I just want to thank the two of you for inviting me to be part of this. I love what you guys are doing on this this podcast I think you are really you're very organic interviewers and it's a lot of fun just kind of chatting with you guys but it's also fun to talk about work sometimes it's fun to not talk about work but yeah I mean I think you know I think it's not anything new I think the entire reason in my opinion that I have the job that I do and and what I think is the most important about it is making sure these kids have access to language. I think it's it's very easily forgotten. I think sometimes we focus on all the micro stuff and you know we uh, we te- check off boxes for things like speech therapy and hearing aids, but uh, the the big thing is looking at the entire person. And I realize that I'm in a in a clinic situation where I am built to do that, so I certainly don't you know, it, these are these are things that take time. But, you know, one thing I always tell parents when we look at an audiogram, I said, you know, I never look in an audi- at an audiogram and determine if somebody needs hearing aids. I always look at, the, at a child. So if you have a mild hearing change and you're a straight A student and socially you're doing great and you're crushing everything, what's am I going to double the quality of your life by putting a pair of hearing aids on you? versus you have the same audiogram and you're borderline failing a couple classes and you're really struggling and you are really hating school. That's somebody who would benefit from hearing aids substantially more. So I think that's a, a conversation that I think is is great to have with families, but it really does take looking at the child that's in front of you and not just the, that piece of them in context. Because like at the end of the day, this is all about function. Great. I think that's super helpful. Thank you so much for for what you do. If people want to find you after the show, are you on social media? Are you online? Or do you recommend any online resources for people if they, you know, want to want to learn more, want to read more? Um, so I am kind of one of those weird Luddite people who I, <laughs> I am not on social media. I used to be. And I that's made, awesome. I, I made that decision a couple of years ago to get off and it was incredibly liberating. So um, no, I do not have any social media, but um, our, we do have the website for the uh, clinic on the children's main website. So it's www.childrens.com forward slash FFC. And our clinic is there. I think we actually have some of our resources posted there as well. And, you know, there's just, 
there's a you know there's a lot of great resources out there that are available online for people who are looking to learn more about this. One of the places that I will tend in terms of professionals who are looking to learn more, a great place to look for some, it's a kind of a really nice clearinghouse website for information regarding early hearing detection and intervention. So that kind of like early language acquisition, birth to three, what are we supposed to be doing with kids in terms of screening and testing and monitoring? It's the American Academy of Pediatrics, any website. And the website, if I gave you the website, it would be very long, but if you just go into a search engine and type in A-A-P-E-H-D-I, it's the first thing to come up. And there's actually some really great resources there for professionals who are looking to learn a little more about this stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, It's great to have you. For our listeners, you can find us, our Backtable Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. Reach out to us, send us suggestions of topics, speakers, if you want to come on the show. Is that a wrap, Ash? I think that's a wrap. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. (laughs) Bye.